0: in terms of the end of the age and what's going on around us, around the world, and among us, and so on. How much should we understand? There are some who say you won't understand much of anything, and there are some who think you'll understand nearly everything. Uh, I don't know that anybody thinks we'll understand everything. (laughs) I certainly don't. But, we see a world in turmoil today, and let's look at some of the comments that Christ had, and then maybe uh, expand that to some other places to see what they might add to the words that He gave. But He's the person to start with. Let's go to Mark 13. Normally, when this might be mentioned as a context or somewhere to go to examine. We'd say Matthew 24 because it gives a great deal of, uh, detail that Mark does not give and John and Luke don't go into it in quite the same way. Luke 21 does quite a lot. But we hardly ever go to Mark. So I went over and read this and there's some things here that Mark says that I don't think I ever really realized before. He adds a couple of things that uh, seem to me pretty important. So look at Mark 13. And as he went out of the, of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now, reading Matthew 24, you get the impression that All that he had to say was to all the disciples. And here is a different version with a little more detail. Now, undoubtedly, all the disciples at some point came into the conversation. But I think it's important maybe to note that that's not the way this started out. One of his disciples came to him and says, Look at what's here, what manner of stones and all there is. And Jesus answering said to him, not to them, but to him, just one, See you these great buildings, there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Why would that be important? God has a way of revealing things just how and just when He wants to. And do we not have scriptures that talk about fear not, little flock, and how He will work with a few? And if we go back, way back in history, He worked a little bit with Enoch, but when it came time to do a major work, He worked with one man, Noah who then employed his family, apparently. And all through history, and Herbert Armstrong used to point this out quite frequently, God would work through one man at a time. Uh, Whether it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, some of them overlapped, perhaps, some of the prophets, but they still worked, essentially, as single individuals. They didn't go about in twos and threes, uh, Elijah who was uh, followed by Elisha, were together for a short time, and then Elijah was taken away and Elisha took over. So there was some overlap, but God generally worked through one, and even in that case, he worked through Elijah until Elijah was gone, and then he began a work through Elisha, even though Elisha had been the suitcase carrier for a while, He wasn't the one doing the work or the principal one involved until Elijah was gone. So we find that almost without precedent through the Bible. Here, we have one that he begins to reveal this thing to. I think that's important considering the end time. He began working through Herbert Armstrong to reveal Truths and some prophecy, limited prophecy, about what would be. So he only worked through that one man, and Herbert Armstrong even recognized that, and he would say it fairly frequently. I'm the only one that's preached this in 1900 years, he'd say, and shake his jowls. I'm getting back and mimicking him now a little bit. But, uh, he was right. <laughs> it wasn't just ego, it was the truth. And it was an important point. Now, you might have looked at it and says, well, that's just his ego, and he thinks he's the only one. Well, turns out he was. And I don't think that was just ego talking. I think it was important that he recognized that there was only one in-time work, not a whole bunch of them. And no one could claim to preaching and teaching those things as it came to be. Now, there were Seventh-day Church of God people around, uh, keeping the Sabbath and Holy Days and so on, and he was affiliated with that for some time. But they weren't doing anything. Just sitting, doing nothing, basically. So, in separating from them, he started doing something. And that's important to realize that, Seventh-day Church of God today is still essentially doing nothing. You don't hear of them, never did hear of them, even through all the years when Worldwide Church of God was on the radio and TV around the world. Seventh-day Church of God was doing nothing. So God did work through that one man. Now, here in the end, he indicates very clearly that he's going to work through too. But they don't even get together, says Isaiah 52, until the signs and wonders occur that are listed in uh, Zechariah 3. Let me read that to you. We've been there several times, but let's go back to Isaiah 52. Because people still ask me this once in a while. Well, when, when is this? Seeing eye to eye together, and when are they going to appear? Verse 7. He's talking here about putting on our beautiful garments, our righteousness that we need here at the end time, and how we have been slaves of the system and so on. And then he says in verse 7 that there will come someone preaching, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, not them, just one, that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. Now, this context begins in Isaiah 40 when Herbert Armstrong died and his sons became powerless eunuchs, unable to do anything, which is what happened to the church. Many, many have tried to do something and cannot, would not, and will not. So that's when this context started, and it's still going on here, When he uses one that brings good tidings that publishes peace, that talks about harmony, publish uh, peace, and getting along. And in fact, in Zechariah 3, speaking of the Joshua there, it says, In this place, no, it's in Haggai, in this place will he bring peace. So it's the two along with the remnant where peace occurs. But that, that, uh, Publishing or talking about it has to occur that brings forth good tidings of good, a good message, a message of blessing, a message of God helping out in a world gone dark that publishes salvation that says to Zion, your God reigns. There is a God alive. He is reigning over the universe, he's reigning over the earth, and he has his purposes that he's going to fulfill. So that message has to come. And then it changes to plural in verse 8. It's just one in verse 7 who comes ahead of time preaching these things. Then it says, Thy watchmen, plural, shall lift up the voice with the voice of Together shall they sing. So one brings a message, and then two sing together. Uh, You need to be in harmony with each other in order to sing together, right? For they shall see eye to eye. Understand things the same way. Agree. Sing together. However you want to put it. When. Here he gives you the timing. When the Lord shall bring again Zion. Bring again means to bring forth or to turn around and begin to bless, as he says in other places. Zion the church was here, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. And then it disappeared, went away, died. Sardis worldwide died. So it disappeared. So he's bringing Zion back again. The former temple was torn down. Now he's going to build the latter temple. So that's bringing it back again. So at the beginning of that is when they will see eye to eye and sing together in harmony and not until then. That's the key. Now you want to Back that up a little. Go to Zechariah 3. Uh, verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your fellows that sit before you, a congregation then. For they are men of wonder, it should say. Um For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Now that's speaking of Zerubbabel, who's referred to as the branch of God. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And then every man in that day will call his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So a time of peace, of harmony, of every man having uh, a bit of property perhaps and being able to uh, plant and grow things. So here are men of wonder. My In the Hebrew it says in my margin, men of wonder or for a sign, so signs and wonders. And in Joel 2, it shows signs and wonders there toward the end about the the visions and the dreams and all those things that are going to occur. So it's referring to the same time that Isaiah 52, verse 8, is describing, that signs and wonders will occur, as God turns things around and begins to bring the church back to life. So it is those two then we see in Zechariah 4 who are pouring out the golden oil, God's Spirit, His truth, His teaching to all seven churches, to all those from whatever of the seven they are in today. They will gather together and be taught by those two. So they have to be seeing eye to eye at that point. And if you go on over to Zechariah 6, uh, here's where it mentions, one place at least, about the branch. Verse 12, and speak to him, speaking of Joshua here that has some crowns made for him. Say, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the eternal. Even he shall build the temple, says there in Zechariah 4, his hands began it, they will finish it. And he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So it's speaking of Joshua there, and then it says that God will reveal his servant, the branch. There in Zechariah 3, it says, I'll bring forth my servant, the branch. Reveal, bring forth, same thing, uh, as a result of the signs and wonders that will get the branch's attention, and then he will come and they will see eye to eye and preach together about these things very clear how that is going to happen. And he talks about the one stone in verse 9, laid before Joshua with the seven eyes. Uh, The eyes of the angels over the seven churches. And he says he'll plant in the wilderness seven trees in Isaiah 41. So trees, churches, stones, are all referring to the same thing. And then... uh, Then it goes on down in chapter 6 and verse 15, And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Eternal your God. So that talks about the remnant that Haggai talks about coming from far off to come and build in the temple. And that warning in Zechariah 3 isn't just to Joshua to be clean. It's to all of us. Because that's what it says right here. He's speaking to those who come to build the temple. And this shall come to pass if you, all of you, the whole remnant, diligently obey God. So Joshua in chapter 3 is representative of a people who need cleansed by the word of God. And then Isaiah 54, the last verse says, Your righteousness will be of me, my righteousness upon you, as opposed to the self-righteousness that you have had before. And we've all been self-righteous, every last one of us, to one degree or another. So that self-righteousness is going to go away, And he really puts it upon us here to diligently obey. It's easy to look at Zechariah 3 and say, well, that's just talking to that individual who's been filthy. No, the whole church has been filthy. That's why it got spewed out. And those who come have to be cleansed. And there later in in Isaiah 52, it says, Be you clean, not just one, but be all of you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal." So he wants a cleansed church, a pure church, an obedient church, to do his work through in the end time. And that was principally what was wrong with Worldwide Church of God. We were not diligently obeying. We were not overcoming and growing in the way that we should. And we took things for granted and thought our salvation was assured because we had our ticket punched in the church and to Petra which was the wrong place in the first place. So because of that lackadaisical, take it for granted attitude, God blew it apart. Now he says, I don't want that anymore. I want you all to diligently obey me, and these things will come to pass, if you will, from the leaders right on down to everybody. So he's talking to all of us, if we are being called to be part of the latter temple. It has to be a light to the world. So it can't just be some people who are half-hearted. We've got to be zealous and taking great care in what we're doing. After all, we represent the bride of Christ. And he wants his bride to be attendant, uh, attendant, attentive, To be involved, to be zealous, to be excited, to be passionate, if you will. Anybody ever marry a wife and not want her to be passionate? I kind of doubt it. That's what Christ wants, is a passion for Him and for what He's doing, and for being with and living with Him. Now, maybe it's hard for us men to grasp that entirely, uh, but... For a wife who's marrying a husband, she pretty well gets what I'm trying to say, I think. And she either is or isn't all of those things. And when God calls us, we aren't all those things. He calls the weak and the base to confound the wise. So his purpose right now is to cause us to quit being weak and base and be strong and powerful lights to the world. That means diligent obedience, diligent zealousness, excitement, and passion is a good word there. Why do they call it the passion of Christ? It's not a word the Bible put on it, but that's a word that the world uses. What did he go through? It wasn't sexual passion, but it was certainly the epitome of spiritual and emotional passion in every form and fashion there could be. No human being has gone through what he did and all the ups and downs and frustrations and emotion and clinging to faith and trust and all the things that he went through there. And his disciples are a good example of that. He knew what was coming at midnight, (laughs) knew exactly what was going to happen. He had read Psalm 22 and 23 and Isaiah 52 and all those scriptures we read on Passover. He knew exactly what was coming, and he was out there on his face sweating blood while his disciples were going to sleep. So yes, there was a lot of passion involved in everything that he did there. But his disciples didn't share it. They didn't grasp it. They didn't understand it. It was clear right there during the supper they didn't understand it. When he sent Judas out to go do his thing, they says, where's he going? Does he got to go buy something for the feast or whatever, make some arrangements? They didn't get it. That's why Christ had to tell Peter, when you are converted, then feed my sheep. Because he wasn't yet. And these right here weren't yet in Mark 13. So I think that's an important point for us to grasp, is that one came and he told one. And then we'll see here that the gathering got a little larger. It wasn't all of them yet. Let's read on down. So there wouldn't be one stone on another that wouldn't be thrown down. In verse 3, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So whichever one it was who asked him originally must have told others I suspect it was probably John, but I have no way of knowing that, because John communicated with him pretty closely, more so than the others did often. So it it, it doesn't matter, it was just one. And then four of them came, probably including that one, and asked him privately off in the corner, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Fulfilled. Now, notice, they didn't really ask for reiteration that the stones would be all thrown down. They wanted to know when. (laughs) That was the first thing on their mind, is when is this going to happen? Because it wasn't a great leap from this is going to happen, and your next thought is, now? When? So that's the first subject that comes up. Now before we get into that, which is where we're headed ultimately, there's another point, I think uh, that needs some thought and some study. I'm not sure exactly what this means, but I've never noticed it until this morning. Notice in verse three, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, so he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Now, that is reiterated or explained as well in Matthew 24, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives. But there's a detail added here that caught my eye. He sat on the Mount of Olives over against the temple. I have never heard anywhere that the temple was on the Mount of Olives. Have you? I've always been told it was on the Temple Mount within the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, when I went there, there was the Dome of the Rock over Solomon's Porch, they call it, and the weeping, wailing wall is kind of just below that, within the city walls. And they've since apparently proven that that was the, the wall of a Roman fortification of a fort. It wasn't the temple at all. Now they all say that that's the temple, or was the temple, right there in the city. Well, I put together some scriptures some time back. That, where was it? Was it Bethesda or Bethel? It says there were so many furlongs from Jerusalem, which was, and they were on the Mount of Olives. And the furlongs came out to about a mile and three quarters, roughly. So. The Mount of Olives is about a mile and three-quarters from the original Jerusalem site. I've been over that many times. In the Middle East, if you come outside the uh, the city wall, there's a street there right up against the wall. I mean, just probably a few feet away. And then just on the other side of the street, I think it's only a two-lane street, there's a bridge You cross a little draw on that bridge and start up what they call the Mount of Olives. It isn't a mile and three-quarters away. Some people have tried to tell me, well, if you go clear to the top and over, it's that far away. I don't think so. I'd have to look at that. But that isn't a very tall mountain. It's a hill. And I didn't walk a mile and three-quarters up it. Uh, Walked a ways up it, but it wasn't that far away. I'm sorry. But here is something else thrown in. He sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple. That sounds to me like the temple was on the Mount of Olives, which would have put it about a mile and three quarters from the city of Jerusalem. This is a new thought. I'm I'm just trying to put these scriptures together. Says there in Malachi three, Christ will suddenly come to his temple. Zechariah fourteen says he'll put his feet down on the Mount of Olives. Will the temple be built on the Mount of Olives? And he'll come to that temple when he sets his foot down on it? I don't know. <laughs> it's just a new thought. Uh, that's a year after he originally returns in the first resurrection because it says all his saints will come with him when he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives there in Zechariah 14. So they rise to meet him in in the air when he returns with the first resurrection, have that year's honeymoon at the Sea of Glass where they're married, and then come back with him, all his saints with him, when he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives a year later, or about a year later. But there's a really interesting statement that I want to uh, explore a little more. See what evidence, other evidence there might be that augments it. So anyway, that's a sidelight. Not where I was headed, but it just uh, I, it really caught my eye. Verse four: Tell us when shall these things be? Now, what he answers after that has to be an answer to their question. There's quite a bit of material that follows that, quite a bit of instruction. Not as much here in Mark 13 as it's in Luke Luke 21 and Matthew 24. But that's the question he's answering. So if you want to know when, then pay attention to what Christ says after this. Now, is there a temple existing today? Not a physical one. The one that they say was there in Jerusalem and the nation of Israel is not there. And they're talking about rebuilding it. Now, if he was talking about that temple that was there that he visited and walked on the porch and was reading Scripture in, if he was talking about that one, that would have happened right away because it's gone, been gone for a long, long time. So it could he was talking about that one being destroyed, but it wasn't the final fulfillment, obviously. Because the question is also asked down here, and in Matthew 24, I remember specifically, what is the sign of the end of the age? When will the end come? And he he describes that in Matthew 24. That's part of the question. When is the end? So, We're not talking about a physical temple here necessarily that currently exists, are we? There just isn't one. So Herod's temple that they were sitting looking at is gone. Been gone for 2,000 years nearly. There's another one soon to be built. I believe it will be torn down. I think we're going to see that be destroyed. Maybe today and maybe not today. It depends on how many side trips I take here before we get into this all the way. (laughs) But the question was when. Don't forget that. Can we have some light shed upon that? Well, that's obviously what he went ahead and did was shed some light on it. Maybe not as much as you want, but Quite a bit. And maybe we'll find some places that shed more. When all these things shall be fulfilled, and Jesus, what had they been talking about? Maybe they were talking about various things that were going to occur. Maybe Christ talked to them about prophecy. Maybe they asked questions about some of the Old Testament prophets. I don't know. It wasn't there. But They says, when all these things shall be fulfilled, sounds like it's a bigger subject than just that building that was there. And Jesus answering them began to say, take heed lest any man deceive you. There will be a lot of information come out, and a lot of it will be incorrect. You have to be careful that you're not deceived by it. Take heed lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, I think it's an interesting parallel that he told them and answered them a lot about when. But he left an awful lot out because he did not want them to know. When? They would know certain things, and He gave them just enough to keep them thinking that it would be in their lifetimes that all these things would come to pass. And they preached that. You go through the different prophecies of Paul, of Peter, different ones, and it's very, very clear in the Scripture that they thought It was coming in their day. Now, I think by the time John was the last man standing, he knew that was not the case. And maybe some of the others, as they were being crucified, began to realize it wasn't going to happen in their lifetime either. Now, Today, if anybody says, well, I think it's going to be here, or it could be there, or they speculate about it, and then it doesn't happen just the way they speculated, we immediately say that's a false prophet. Not so fast. If you're going to use that reasoning and that logic, then Peter and James and John and Andrew were all false prophets. But the truth is, they weren't. God tells us to preach to the limit of our understanding. And that's what they did. He didn't give them understanding beyond a certain point, but they preached to the limit of it. They preached all they understood, and they thought some things were going to happen that weren't, that they didn't understand. Now, that doesn't make them a false prophet. I have heard people Since Herbert Armstrong died, he was a false prophet. What was their logic? What was their reasoning? He said that 1972 would start this stuff and it would all be over by 1975. I started hearing that when I was eight, nine years old, in the early 50s. That it was going to be in 72 and 75. We had a booklet we put out. 1975 in prophecy. He thought it was coming in his time. Which makes him exactly like James, Peter, John, Andrew, and Philip and the rest. If they're false prophets, he was a false prophet. If they weren't, he wasn't either. I think we need to grasp that. Now, that's one side of the coin. Is that you can speculate and you can read the scriptures, and he'll tell us down here to watch, and he'll add some detail to that. So we're to know a certain amount, as we're going to see. And maybe a lot, as we may shall see. But it comes in time as he wants to reveal it, and he never revealed it until way later in the lives of the apostles, if he ever did. And he never revealed it to Herbert Armstrong. I know he never did, because he never knew. Well, he knew 1975 wasn't it, because he lived till 1986. He knew he'd been wrong. And we all knew he'd been wrong. And now even more people know he was wrong because it's way past his death in 1986. Some of you are beginning to get a little bit of gray hair who were born since he died. <laughs> you know, maybe not much, but a little. So let's understand that he reveals what he wants revealed when he wants to reveal it. And we need to understand that as we read this, Because even in the end-time era of the Church of God, which we're part of, there has been limited understanding. And it says that at some point there will become one who is a type of Elijah who will restore all things. Well, Herbert Armstrong certainly did not restore all things. And he still didn't know the timing at the time he died. Somebody has to come along who will restore a lot of things that Herbert Armstrong never restored because it wasn't God's time for that to happen. Now, Herbert Armstrong, raised God used him to raise up a work that was pretty effective in calling a lot of people. But he late in his life could see the handwriting on the wall. I don't think I've portrayed it in quite these terms before, but I have quoted what he told me uh, in 1983. We were going into his office, and he says, go on in, he says, i got to go in here a minute and take my heart pills. He says, I probably shouldn't be taking these, but he said, I'm afraid if I die, the church is going to fall apart. That was in 1983, and he did die three years later, approximately. But what hits me is that he knew, he feared, he suspected that when he died, the church would fall apart. Now, by that, he didn't think that earlier in life. You know that? He thought... Maybe I'll say originally, at some point he came to think, that the 19-year time, the time cycles he went by, uh, one of them went in in 1972, and that would signal the beginning of the end, and by 1975 it would all be over and Christ would be here ruling. I don't know when he put all that together, but it turns out, yes, those time cycles might have meant something in the history of worldwide, and then they ceased to mean anything if they ever really did. But he had come from believing. He went to the Middle East. He went to Petra. I remember all kinds of articles coming out in The Plain Truth, pictures of him riding a camel and going to Petra and talking about it being the place of safety, and then it became the mantra we all used. How are we going to get to Petra? Well, we gather in Jerusalem, came a little later, and then walk, uh, because they don't have airliners going to Petra. Uh, How's this going to happen? But everybody thought we were going to Petra. Not in the Bible. (laughs) It's in some Protestant literature. It's in some Protestant thinking, but it's not in the Bible, and that is The promised land over there isn't in there either, when you understand it. So it it was all just wrong. And he never came to understand that. He thought that was it over there. That's why he went over there a lot, and why he got to know Mayor Teddy Colick in Jerusalem, and went to Hebrew University there in the city, and conferred with their uh, scholars, wanting to know more about all of this. It's why he sent people over as volunteers, To dig in archaeological sites, hoping to find the things of the Bible, which to date, they still have not found. They're just not there. But he thought they would be. God never showed him different. Was he a false prophet? No. He taught me an awful lot of truth. I can remember as a kid going through the church the correspondence course, reading the plain truth and the good news, going to the feast and hearing sermons, and learning the truths of God. And after having learned some, coming back, not yet having, my family not yet quite having finished up with a Methodist church, and why I remember old Horace Brooks, I'll never know. I wasn't very old, but he was the bald-headed Methodist preacher had a big picture behind the podium of a long-haired, really sweet-looking Jesus walking down a path with the sun shining on him. Ugh. I still struggle to get that picture once in a while out of my mind. But the last Sunday we went, he'd heard that we had believed now you shouldn't eat things that creep, crawl, and strike, and so on on the earth unclean food so he'd he'd heard that we were thinking that way so he gave a what 15-20 minute talk I don't remember that's about the amount of time they used to preach about how wrong that was and how God cleansed all things and you can eat anything no matter how slimy or slick it is everything's good that was the last Sunday we went but where did I learn that from Herbert Armstrong, wasn't from Horace Brooks, The things were clean and unclean. And there aren't many people on earth today, even in the so-called Christian world, who believe it today. They all think you can eat anything you want. So we learned a lot from that man, and he taught us the truth. Not the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but a lot of truth, and the whole truth is to come later. So the contrast I'm building up here, I guess, is that Christ said many will come and they won't tell you all the right things, but they'll deceive you. Well, some might say that Christ deceived the disciples. And he didn't tell them. Christ isn't a liar. He didn't deceive them. He just didn't tell them the whole truth. Or if he did, it was in code word or parable so that they wouldn't understand at that time. So, he could have been telling truth that they didn't grasp. There's an awful lot of truth involved in here that we who read the Bible for decades never got. Just never got it. But it was there all along. It was just here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, and it hadn't all been put together so that we could understand it. I mean, I may be wrong about the temple being on the Mount of Olives, and I'm not stating at this point that it was. But how many times have I read Mark 13 and never even noticed that? So there's so many things in here that we just skim over looking for when, and I didn't notice where. <laughs> so maybe that's something we just learned. I don't know that. But there will probably be some corroboration at some point because we've got to go build the temple. And we better know where to do it. I think I know pretty well where the site of Jerusalem was, and I do believe I know where the Mount of Olives is. But I still don't know where the temple was. And I hope pretty soon to have a map that shows exactly where it was. I think we'll have those maps. I think God is going to bring them out. Isaiah 45 talks about it. Now, when you read Isaiah 45, it's easy to get your mind on maybe the gold and the silver that's the treasures of God. No, there's other treasures buried. Probably the mummies of some of the patriarchs. A library that shows maybe the original scrolls the scriptures were written on. Maybe maps of the original promised land and where all the cities were. People make maps, don't they? We got maps all around us. We used to use them. Now we ask Surrey where to go. And she tells us where to go. That's a pun. I was talking to someone. This is a sideline. I was talking to someone on the phone the other day, on my house phone, okay? And my cell phone was laying right over here. And as I'm talking, I glanced over at the cell phone, and the screen lit up. And on the screen were coming the words that I was saying, everything I said in the conversation, and everything that the person I was talking to was appearing right below it, all written out. That freaked me out. They're listening to you all the time. And then I made a comment. I said, Siri or Google or whoever it was is writing out our conversation just as I speak. I said, how in the world can this be? And then Siri says, I'm sorry, I thought you were talking to me. I'll disregard everything you've said. Talk back to me. I'm still freaked out. As I said, that's an aside. Now, where are we? Don't let any man deceive you. Verse 6, for many shall come in my name... And I think he meant by their using my name, because the, if they're deceiving you, they're not coming in his authority or by his authority or in his name in that sense. When we talk to the Father, we come in his name, by his authority, with his approval, and he is the mediator who hears it and, in that sense, passes it along to the Father. So coming in his name can mean more than one thing. And in the context here, it's clear it means they'll use my name. But not having been ordained by me or sent by me, they're coming presumptuously. And he says, presumption is as witchcraft. When people raise themselves up and put themselves in an office and claim to be such and such on their own, You better be careful. Did he have anything to do with what they say they're doing? Now, Horace Brooks, again, would have said he was a minister of Jesus Christ, coming in Jesus' name. No, he wasn't. He was using Jesus' name, using a picture of probably a demon, but he wasn't coming by Jesus' authority. He hadn't been sent by. Because he was teaching you keep Sunday and Christmas and Easter and ignore clean and unclean and all those things. Very little that Protestant preach is from the Bible. I started to say out of the Bible. Nearly everything they preach is out of the Bible. It doesn't come near it. It's outside it. <laughs> little different cast on the words there. So they'll come using his name, but will deceive many. For many shall come using my name, if I might use that clarification, saying that I am Christ, and shall deceive many. They'll be saying he's Christ, but they'll be using Satan, who is their father, as Christ. Isn't that a great deception? That they say, this is Jesus, and it didn't look anything like he did. Didn't teach anything like he did. You know, they all think he was long-haired and was beautiful. No. It says it's a shame for a man to have long hair. And it says that there was nothing about him that would cause us to desire him. He was not a handsome man. Now, that's part of what he had to live with. I don't know whether he'd have been described as ugly or not, but he certainly wasn't any human being that would cause people to look upon him because of his looks. He was not tall, dark, and handsome. Might have been dark, but he wasn't tall and handsome. I don't think. I know he wasn't handsome, because it says that. Nobody would want to desire him for his looks. You know, that's in a way a strike against you as a human being. Everybody wants to look good. And they spend an awful lot of time and money and energy, billions of dollars a year trying to look good. Trying to look just right in their clothes. Trying to look just right in their face. Trying to get their hair just right. Everybody wants to look good and be thought to look good. And it so pleases them when you said, Oh, you look so beautiful today. (gasps) Just light up. (coughs) What if they walked up and said, You're kind of dog ugly, but I need to talk to you? (laughs) Wouldn't you feel bad? How did he feel when people said, Ugh, he's the teacher? This guy over here, that that priest over there is a lot better looking than he is. How can I listen to him when I have to stand there and sit there and look at him? (coughs) So I don't know how bad it was, but it certainly wasn't that he had a physical appeal. So he didn't look like they say, and he didn't teach like they say. And almost everything you read that he says here, they ignore. So when he says, be careful, they'll deceive you. John was there, specifically John right here. And what did he say? We read it just recently. If they come and bring not this doctrine, neither receive them, don't listen to them, Or no, it says, don't receive them into your house, nor bid them Godspeed. If they're teaching what's wrong, you're not supposed to bring it into your house, spiritual house, temple, as well as your physical house. And you're not supposed to say, God be with you. Now here's somebody teaching falsehood. Why would I say, God be with you? Because God isn't with them. They're teaching falsehood, which means they're following Satan. They're people who have left us, who now don't believe in the true calendar. Some of them believe the earth is flat, I guess. They're associating with people who believe that. They're reneging on a lot of things that they once understood. I'm not going to bid them Godspeed. When the right times come, I'm going to say, scram! Scram! Get out of here. Because that's what God says has to happen. So I'm not going to say God be with you. Or God speak. I might say go from here and find God. You've already proved that you don't think he's here. He's not in my teaching anymore. You've already said that. So go find him then. Go. Find God. And you know what it says? It says they're all going to go out into the famine and the sword and be killed. Jeremiah 11. I hope and pray. I'm not saying I'm against these people. I'm saying I hope and pray that they repent before they're killed. And I hope they're in the kingdom of God. That I do wish. But as long as they're teaching falsehoods, bad doctrine, I'm not to allow that in my house, and I'm not to bid them God be with you, or however you might want to say that. God makes that very clear. Before that, in Jeremiah 11, he says, don't pray for this people. They won't repent. Now, I'm hoping he was only saying, while they're here, I'm hoping that they will have a chance to repent before they're killed. That I do hope, and that I do pray for, because we are to pray for our enemies and those who despitefully use us and persecute us. We're supposed to do that. They won a little round with the the judge just recently, uh which I could have said in the announcements, but it just now comes to mind. Uh, he re—he's the one that threw out the TIC and said it is no good. It's illegal. And now he says that he's reinstating the TIC. And there were supposed to be little good little boys and girls and get along with each other. Okay. But there's still never been a vote taken on anything in the TIC where there could be Possibly a 75% majority. It hasn't happened yet. Now they, without conferring with us, maybe took a vote among themselves and set up their government to rule the TIC. And it's been sending me bills ever since for me to pay, which I ignore. I don't even read the things anymore. Because they think they're in charge. Well, unless they get a 75% vote, they aren't. And we're not going to let them have a 75% vote because we hold enough of the lots that they can't get it without your approval, overall my approval, because you put your land back in so that they couldn't pick us off one at a time. We were, that was a defensive maneuver. That's all it's about. Now, we, on the other hand, went about it legally. We didn't vote ourselves as being the governing body of the TIC. We didn't have enough votes to do so. So we did what the TIC tells you to do. Send a certified letter asking for a meeting, and we sent one to every one of them, asking them to come to a meeting at a certain time and place, So that we could discuss matters regarding the TIC and vote on some issues. And not one of them showed up. All of us that were here at the time showed up, but they never showed up. So we tried to do it right, and they ignored us. Now they're trying to be arrogant and rule over us without our permission, which has not been granted. And is illegal completely. But the judge is giving a little credence to it. Well, these must be the governing body. Well, no, there's never been a vote taken. They can't be. So at all, they're gonna put it into jury trial, and some of the things see, they're gonna be around here crowing about it. About how they just won. They got a partial uh, a partial summary judgment. Not a total one, but a partial one. So that he's reinstating the the TIC on a legal basis. But he says it all has to come to trial. So they're supposed to have a meeting sometime in July by phone with the judge to set up a trial date, which apparently is sometime next year. I kind of doubt next year is going to look like this year, because this year certainly doesn't look like last year. It's getting worse by the day. So I'm not worried about it. But if you hear they want a little victory, uh, yeah. And our lawyer says, that is the worst judge that I've ever had the pleasure of coming up to. He doesn't know. Let me get a respectable comparison here. He doesn't know anything from nothing. You use that. That'll work. So, Nothing really has changed, and no date has been set, but he's, nearly everything in there, he said it'll have to be decided at trial. Well, by sometime next year, or maybe even by July when the date is set, you may have to have a backsport to get in court. That's a, New term they've got. They've shortened it from vaccine passport to Vaxport. You may not even be able to get in court without proof of vaccination. Or you have to wear a mask because you've not been vaccinated. Now, that's coming up in some stores now. You either have to have proof of vaccination or wear a mask which tells everybody there that you have not been vaccinated because you have a mask on. Except some few paranoid who have two masks and a vaccination passport. Who walk about in total fear. So, is this thing ever going to get to trial? One of the Bundys recently was in court and refused to wear a mask and they put him in jail. For not wearing a mask in court. No, I won't do that. Okay, see ya. Clink. They might stick us some of us in jail at some point, not because of a crime, not because of anything we've done, but just because we walked in without a vaccination or a mask. That'll get you in jail. It could even get you put in a FEMA camp, and it could get you guillotined. As this thing develops. So, not to worry. God will take care of us. They'll deceive you. Deceive many. It says in another place, Satan deceives the whole world. It says in Revelation 18 that they will use medical science and pharmakeia to cause that deception. Now, people are saying this mask is the beginning of the mark of the beast, or this vaccination isn't it. It's not in your hand or your forehead. It's on your face or your arm, maybe. And they won't admit that this is the precursor to that, and that it's part of that. But they haven't read Revelation 18 where it says sorceries, but you look up the Greek and it's pharmakeia, pharmacy, medicine, the medical world, is the means by which they will deceive the whole world. I think that says in one verse that that's what this is. And everybody who accepts it becomes part of the beast that we now see arising in very clear terms. Now, is he talking about the end of the world and when these things occur? Let me go back just for a second to Matthew 24, verse 5. For many shall come in my name, saying that I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. Deceive them about who he is because it won't be him they're talking about. They'll use his name, but they're talking about the devil, deceiving the whole world. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then he goes into more detail about things that must happen before the end comes. So, when they start deceiving us about Masks and vaccines and all of these things, some of these things are starting to be fulfilled. But they're not finished yet. There's still a lot more to come. But they'll say, he's God. What does the book of Revelation say? They'll proclaim the what God calls the Antichrist. They'll say he's Christ returning to rule the world, but no, he is against Christ. He's a Luciferian Satan worshiper who is deceiving the whole world into worshiping him as if he is Christ. That's what it's all about, using his name but deceiving the whole world. And clearly, Satan is the one behind it all, because he's the one who is the deceiver of the whole world. It's he uses man and medicine to do it. Other than self, I would say the biggest, I haven't thought it through, but other than self, the medical world may be the second biggest idol in this country. I mean, we put ourselves ahead of God in so many, many ways, any and every way of whatever we want to do or think. But as far as an outward thing of accepting something and making it what we go by and what we look to and what we worship, medical science comes pretty close to replacing God in the eyes of most people on earth today, and especially, I'd say, in America, what does God say if any be sick among you let him call to the elders of the church and they will pray and that Christ's sacrifice and his stripes are how we are healed he is our healer that's one of his titles Okay, he's the sovereign of the universe he's the lord of hosts he is the almighty God He is our healer. It's just one of his many titles. Now, anyone else who tries to take any one of his titles is in serious trouble, being presumptuous, arrogant, utterly selfish, and putting himself ahead of God. So anyone who claims to be a healer, when God is the healer of the Bible is anti-Christ and against God and is taking the position of God. And some of them are Christian who take God's name and deceive you with pharmacaea, telling you drugs are going to heal your problem. Medical science, essentially, is idol worship. And any time people in our nation get sick, that's the first place they run, is to the doctors, who have taken the place of God. By pharmakeia, medical science, if you will, they'll deceive the whole world. People have faith in drugs, in antibiotics, in all kinds of things that Pharmakeia produces, where God says, use herbs that I've created for health, use natural things that I've made, and they're trying to do away with all sales of anything natural that comes from the herbs that God made. The CDC and others are actively trying to get that stopped. So God says, use the things I have created, not something that somebody did in a lab. They put poisons that cannot be used on humans or on animals by veterinarians in the vaccine. Those substances are there. Outright poison to men and animals, and it's in the vaccine. Are we being deceived, or what? I belong to God. He made me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, believe it or not. Looks aren't everything. God put our bodies together in an incredible fashion. He knows what's wrong with them. He knows how to fix it. And when we get to where we obey him, he says he will fix it. Now, I have a problem if I go to the medical world to give me drugs and stuff to make me well. Because God told me to do this. Now, if I do that instead of this, where does that put me with God? What difference does it make whether I live or die? What makes a difference is what happens when I die. Because it isn't an if with any of us, is it? We're all appointed once to die. So the when matters not. The how might matter. But how we try to preserve this life when God says, I am your healer, and your creator and you belong to me and you sell yourselves out to Satan and pharmakeia you're putting yourself in a pretty dangerous position so that if you do die you might wind up in the wrong place having worshipped the wrong god drugs are not the answer you're better to get off the drug and die and stay with a false God and a false idol. People used to ask me back in the 60s. I'm a diabetic. Day of Atonement comes. I can't fast. I might die. I remember one lady who would come every year. Well, what what should I do? She says, I'll get sick. I won't could even kill me to fast twenty four hours I wouldn't tell her you have to fast i wasn't going to take I wasn't going to lay that on her. I says you have choices to make. God says we're to fast twenty four hours, and he doesn't give a list of exceptions unless you have diabetes or you don't like to get thirsty or whatever you might dream up is your reason for not keeping the Day of Atonement as He describes. So I would tell her, you have to make choices, but strictly speaking, you are not obeying the commandment as God wrote it. Make up your mind. I'm not going to try to tell you what to do. I'll tell you what God said, and then you have to Work on your faith and your level of obedience and all those things in order to somehow come into compliance with God. I did not say you really ought to do it this year. I would just let them know that they were not in complete compliance with God. Then they have to go to Him and get that squared away somehow, some way. Now, she's dead by now. I didn't read her obituary, but she was probably 50, 60 years old, and that was in 1967 or 8. So I expect she's dead. Did she die keeping the Feast of Atonement properly, or Fast of Atonement, or did she not? I have no idea. All I know is I told her, this is what God says. We need to, at some point, some way, somehow, be in compliance with him. So, was she able to take a leap of faith? Or was that a weakness till the time she died? And she died anyway. Now, she's dead and she knows nothing, right? What if she died back then? She'd be in the same position, dead, knowing nothing. What difference did it make whether she lived from age 50 to age 80? Before she died knowing nothing. Just more time walking on this earth, that's all. It's going to come to an end at some point, whether you're three or eighty-three. What is important is what you do in the meantime, and do you step out on faith and serve God? Now, he gives us time and space for repentance. But in any case, I don't know how much or how long he considers our circumstance, he considers our background, he considers everything about us that we can't consider about each other, nor even about ourselves. He knows stuff about you and me that we don't even ourselves know. So he takes everything into consideration in making his judgments we just need to write, read what he wrote and work on compliance, grow, and overcome. He doesn't say you had to be perfect when he returns or when you died, but that you had to grow and overcome. So we need to be headed that direction. Now, it would be better if we grew and, all, all, grew and overcome overnight. But human beings, I've noticed, change pretty slowly in terms of character. They change pretty slowly. It's hard. It's difficult. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way. Now, you can use that as an excuse for not changing. Or you can say, well, I guess I better get after it. There again. God knows. I remember someone saying, I can see problems or contradictions between the Hebrew calendar And the Bible, help me make this leap of faith. I've quoted that to you. You probably know who I'm talking about. And he said, help me make this leap of faith. And then he got scared and backed off and hasn't done it yet. But I do believe he is going to. Now, it's taken some years, but it's going to happen. I do believe that with all my heart. So it's taken some time. Well, some things you might take a year to change. Clean and unclean meats, we did it in one week. That one was fairly easy. Other things might take a year. Some years might take 50 years. I mean, some things might take 50 years. We're all different. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. And God takes it all into account. But I'll tell you what. This medical deceit is one of the biggest deceits that has ever hit the world. And maybe the greatest, bar none. Because by it, they deceive the whole world. You can cozy up to medical science all you want. But I think I'm going to cuddle up to God the best I can. He's my healer. And he can heal me, and I'm his servant, I'm his creation, and he can let me die any time he wants to. His choice. So why do I fight it? I want to do the things he tells me to be a good steward of my body and take care of it. And yet on the other hand, I can't say, well, it's mine, you can't take it. I'm going to go to the doctor and he'll give it to me. He'll give me another six months or a year or three, and you're going to let me die. We've got choices to make. We've got a God to worship with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. Now, we've been places I did not by any means intend to go, but there they are. And here we are in a world deceiving us about medicine and drugs, instead of herbs, and oil. We need to pay attention, take heed. And I know you're seeking to obey God, and serve God, and have right doctrine, and I think we're talking correct doctrine here. God be with you.